Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Monday, January 3rd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a fresh argument for reclassifying Pluto as a full-fledged planet that would open doors for way more planets than just the OG9. Plus, it was raining fish in Texas last week, and if you've been trying to remember the title of a book you read as a kid, a new community on Instagram might be able to help you out. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. With the new year comes another renewed opportunity to debate whether or not Pluto should be a planet. Ever since getting demoted to dwarf planet status in 2006, Pluto has continued to spark disagreements among astronomers over its classification. In the latest call for Pluto to be reclassified as a planet, a team of researchers writing in an upcoming issue of the journal Icarus have perhaps overcorrected. They don't just want Pluto classified as a planet, they've got a list of over 150 other celestial bodies that they also say should be classified as planets. They have got a decent reasoning, quoting their abstract, The literature shows that the concept of planet developed by scientists during the Copernican Revolution was theory-laden and pragmatic for science. It included both primaries and satellites as planets due to their common intrinsic geological characteristics. About two centuries later, the non-scientific public had just adopted heliocentrism and was motivated to preserve elements of geocentrism, including teleology and the assumptions of astrology. This motivated development of a folk concept of planet that contradicted the scientific view. The folk taxonomy was based on what an object orbits, making satellites out to be non-planets and ignoring most asteroids. Astronomers continued to keep primaries and moons classed together as planets and continued teaching that taxonomy until the 1920s. The astronomical community lost interest in planets circa 1910 to 1955, and during that period complacently accepted the folk concept. Enough time is now so that modern astronomers forgot this history and rewrote it to claim that the folk taxonomy is the one that was created by the Copernican scientists. Starting circa 1960, when spacecraft missions were developed to send back detailed new data, there was an explosion of publishing about planets, including the satellites, leading to the revival of the Copernican planet concept." End quote. In other words, the definition of planet when Pluto was identified in 1930 and the revision of that definition in 2006 are both apparently based on, according to this team of researchers, folkloric astrology and not real astronomy, as the original definition of planet was back in the 16th century. The International Astronomical Union's definition in 2006 laid out three requirements for planets. They had to be spherical, They had to orbit the sun, and they had to have gravitationally cleared an orbit of other objects. 
Quoting NBC News, Pluto meets two of those requirements. It's round and it orbits the sun, but because it shares its orbit with objects called Plutinos, it didn't qualify under the new definition. As a result, the IAU resolved that the solar system only had eight major planets and Pluto was relegated from the list. End quote. But the 16th century definition that this team is arguing for only requires a planet be a geologically active body in space. So that throws open the gates to welcome in a whole host of celestial objects like the moons Europa and Titan and even the asteroid Ceres. As AV Club puts it, it was hard enough to remember my very educated mother just served us nine pizzas as a child. God help the generation that needs to figure out a 150-letter mnemonic device, end quote. As unwieldy as the idea of over 150 planets might be, there is another reason to reconsider how we define planets. The James Webb Space Telescope is set to discover plenty of exoplanets in the far reaches of space, and quoting again from NBC News, lead author Philip Metzger said most star systems are not like ours. Instead of a handful of planets orbiting at large distances, they often have a few very large planets possibly orbited by large moons, circling, circling very close to their star. That means any definition based on our solar system won't be relevant to most of the others. End quote. But UCLA professor and astronomer Jean-Luc Margot disagrees, telling NBC News that the IAU definition would actually work better for classifying exoplanets because it's near impossible to determine if most of them were geologically active or not. So I guess the debate will rage on, although neither side seems particularly willing to bend to the other. The IAU has given no indication that it'll revise their definition, and Metzger says that many scientists have continued to refer to Pluto as a planet in their papers, as well as certain moons like Triton. As the two sides remain at a standstill, Paul Byrne, planetary geologist at North Carolina State University, had an interesting point. We're actually getting a lot of cool new data about Pluto right now, thanks to the New Horizons probe flyby in 2015, like how cool polygonal patches on Pluto's surface are caused by sublimation. But whenever Byrne gives a talk about all these new findings, all anyone cares to know is why Pluto got demoted. He says it's a real shame that that's all that stuck with people about this object that has so much more more to offer. The new year has barely begun and severe weather events are already shaking communities around the U.S. Snowstorms on the East Coast, a devastating wildfire in Colorado, and fish raining from the sky in Texas. Alright, that last one technically happened right at the end of December, but yes, it really did rain fish in Texas, specifically white bass in Texarkana. The city posted a photo of one fish on Facebook announcing that they had experienced a real but rare phenomenon known as animal rain, and asked people from around town to share any photos they had of fish they had seen rain down. Quoting CNN, The residents of Texarkana were by all accounts relatively nonplussed by the bizarre weather event. Tim Brigham told CNN affiliate KSLA he thought it was pretty cool to see tiny fish falling from the sky, and useful too. He said, he started to get me a bucket and pick them up for fishing bait. The employees of Discount Wheel and Tire stepped away from the tires and instead started cleaning up their parking lot's surprise seafood platter. End quote. Most of the fish were only about four to six inches long, which is key to how the whole incident occurred. Quoting National Geographic, 
Animal rain is a real weather phenomenon that happens when small animals get swept up in water spouts or updrafts and then fall to earth with raindrops. Reported rains of bats, fish, snakes, birds, frogs, and jellies stretch back for centuries. The phenomena most associated with animal rain are water spouts, although many meteorologists are skeptical that water spouts can actually cause animal rain. Water spouts form as violent storm clouds swirl above a large body of water. These clouds form a tornado-like whirlwind called a vortex that dips into the ocean, lake, or pond. Water spouts can spin up to 160 kilometers per hour, or 100 miles per hour, and may pull up small objects in their funnel water, pebbles, and small aquatic animals. It's important to remember that a water spout is not a swirling column of water. The water in a water spout is the result of condensation, not liquid sucked up from a body of water. Strong winds, called updrafts, may also pull animals into their swirling vortices. Updrafts can sweep up much larger animals than water spouts, traveling birds and bats, as well as frogs, snakes, and insects. As water spouts and updrafts move over land, they lose their swirling energy. The storm clouds that formed the water spouts are forced to dump their heavy loads. The heaviest objects are dumped first, and then the lightest objects, usually raindrops, are dumped last. This explains why reports of animal rain usually describe only one type of animal raining down. A cloud will dump all objects of a similar weight at the same time. Fish, heavy, followed by insects, lighter, followed by rain, lightest, for example. End quote. And the Library of Congress points out that despite the reasoned explanations and evidence that has happened throughout history, scientists are still usually wary when reports about it raining an animal or insects come out. Often the stories are reported via second or third hand accounts, and sometimes people only see a bunch of the animals on the ground after the storm, not falling from the sky during it, so it could have been caused by another factor, like the water driving animals out of their habitats. In the case of Texarkana last week, though, security footage from that tire shop seems to show the fish falling down, and multiple people across the town provided first-hand accounts. And CNN notes that animal rain occurred in California in 2017 when 100 fish fell onto an elementary school's property, and that it's happened at least three times in the last 30 years in one town in Australia. So just when you thought the weather couldn't get any weirder. If the collective false memory of the Bernstein Bears actually being the Bernstein Bears is any indication, we're not so great at remembering the details or even the titles of our favorite books from childhood. Luckily, there's an Instagram page for that. Account My Old Books, in addition to sharing excellent illustrations from vintage kids' books, regularly posts almost missed connections-style submissions from people describing obscure details about a beloved book from their childhood and calling on followers to figure out the mystery title. The series, which was started back in February and has posted over 100 submissions with a little over a 50% success rate, was started by artist and preschool teacher Marie Pascal Trailer. In addition to the My Old Books account, she runs a second Instagram featuring vintage books for adults and also has an Etsy shop where she sells books from her personal collection. Trailer told NPR that she didn't expect the What's That Book series to take off as much as it did, but, quote, I feel like so much of social media is negative these days and people turn on each other so easily. I love how, in general, on my feed, it seems really positive and people are very supportive and encouraging and they just love talking about these things with each other. So 
So I think it's a little escape maybe from whatever else is going on in their lives, end quote. And apart from pure curiosity or trying to finally solve the mystery of a hazy memory from years ago, the reasons people post submissions range from wanting to share a beloved book from their own childhood with their kids to hoping to surprise someone with a gift of their favorite childhood book. And once someone has had their submission solved, they often stick around to pay it forward. The details in the submissions are always interesting. You know, it's kind of funny to see what aspects of a storybook get lodged in someone's memory persisting into adulthood. Some recent examples include a book about two lion statues licking bald passersby, a half-remembered verse from a book of poetry featuring a sassy, mischievous boy in a sailor suit, a lilac-colored hardcover book with a fabric feel to it about an elephant who at one point cries a puddle of tears, and a book about a bunny and her mom in which the mom sews a star on the daughter's pocket. What really strikes me is how often people can only describe one single image, or a basic description of the style of illustrations, or even just what the cover looked or felt like. These are the things that we remember as kids, what we cling on to, and which somehow make an impression on us even decades later. And despite those whispers of a description, followers are usually able to crack the case and figure out the book in question. Even if you don't have a book that you're searching for, it's a pretty fun Instagram account to scroll through and either quiz yourself on the descriptions and illustrations posted, or just have a bit of a stroll down memory lane. Link to My Old Books is in the show notes. So every year, Jason over at Kotke.org shares Tom Whitwell's list of 52 things that he learned in the past year. This year, Jason decided to share his own list, which I highly recommend checking out. Link in the show notes to both of them. If you're an avid listener to this show or avid reader of Kotke.org, some of them will be familiar, but I wanted to pull out a few new highlights that I found from the two lists. So first, there is a Boeing 727 designated specifically for shipping horses by a company called Tex Sutton. They've been around since 1969, and they call their plane Air Horse One. And second, it turns out that, at least as of earlier this year, we produce 200 times more computers per second than human beings. Another interesting fact, the size of FedEx boxes is proprietary, like the actual volume of space, not just the design. They have a serial shipping container code that excludes other shipping companies from registering a box with the same dimensions. Wild. Here's a fact that I really don't like. According to 25 years of Danish small business data, women's relative earnings increase 4% when their manager becomes someone who is the father of a daughter rather than a son. You shouldn't have to have a daughter to start seeing women as equals. And two separate studies showed that silence and privacy increase productivity, which people who live alone and had to start working from home during the pandemic probably realized once they got over the hump of being distracted by being at home. Oh, and also naps. Quick afternoon naps also increase productivity. Another win for at-home working. Although I have also napped in a nap room at a Google office, so apparently those are a thing. And if you are looking at all of those productivity hacks 
weeks, maybe try to assess if you are actually suffering from productivity dysmorphia, a term coined in September by journalist Anna Cordrea Rado, meaning being unable to see your own success or acknowledge just how much output you are actually producing. And finally, ending with a sweet one, E.B. White recorded the audiobook for Charlotte's Web, and it took him 17 takes to read Charlotte's death scene because he couldn't stop crying. If you want more on any of those, again, check out the links to 52 Things That Jason and Tom Learned in 2021. But that is it for me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.